Father, we give you thanks and praise for another day that has been added to our lives. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come into your house to sing your praise, to hear your word, and to fellowship together in the fellowship that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would just anoint Dr. Dixon with every spiritual benediction and grace that is necessary that he may speak to us in a way that we hear in his voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd. And hearing that voice, we may follow all the days of our life. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, that, uh, that noise you heard a moment ago out there was all my wife. I'll just have you know. <laughs> Laughing and making people laugh. Uh, wow. It's been a wonderful week. And I look forward to one more uh, sermon in there in a moment. But of course, I've been focusing on trying to reach out to a world that isn't quite sure what to make of the Christian faith. And last week, I made the point that the data in America makes clear that there is something happening. There is an increase in those who say they have no religion. There is a decrease in the number of people uh, saying in some way that they are a Christian. And in this context, it's uh, tempting just to shout louder, right? Or try and have evangelistic training programs to make sure we can uh, answer every question and deal with every argument. Uh, others uh, retreat and uh, feel like the, it's all too hard and we just have to wait for the Lord to do something. Uh, I get all of that. Um, and... I too have experienced the difficulty of reaching out to this context, uh, this secularizing context. Because as I think I said last week, you know, the one thing Australia is advanced in compared to America is secularism. We, are, we, do, we do ungodliness and unbelief much better than you do. I was once uh, in a cafe with a pastor friend talking about what I was uh, doing in my church to reach out to the people of my area. This is one of my favorite cafes overlooking Balmoral Beach, uh, where I grew up. And I was serving that area for Christ and trying to work out how you reach uh, those particular people. And I noticed a woman sitting a few tables away uh, looking at us talking. And I assumed she was a Christian really interested in what we were talking about. So I just kept on talking about reaching out to the people of Mossman. And then this woman uh, stood up, paid her bill, and I saw her in the corner of my eye walking toward our table. She stopped, looked at us in front of a full cafe, and she at the top of her voice said, you want to convert the world, do you? How dare you? At which point I realized... Perhaps she wasn't a Christian, interested in our conversation, some other, you know, kind of tradition. And it was one of those occasions where I was dumbfounded at the moment. I had an awesome comeback three hours later. At the time, I was... And she stormed off. I'm left there with my friend. We're feeling pretty sheepish. And we just thought... For a moment, anyway, 
is what we're talking about. Reaching out to others, trying to bring the gospel to the wider world, the stuff of fanaticism. Is that fundamentalistic, proselytizing, horrible Christianity? For a moment, we doubt it, even though we were professionals. And I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences, perhaps more dramatic, perhaps not so dramatic, where you've questioned, is it really a beautiful thing? And how would you do it anyway when a world is antagonistic like that? Well, last week I offered just three points about promoting the gospel. You may remember them if you were here. If, if not, let me repeat them. Deeds, finances, prayer. That is, the New Testament explicitly connects our good deeds in the wider community as a way of promoting the gospel. I'm not just saying the New Testament tells us to do good deeds. Of course. I'm saying the New Testament actually says that deeds shine the light of salvation to the world. The New Testament also emphasizes finances, that is, giving, giving uh, to the work of the gospel. Uh, and the New Testament doesn't simply say Christians must give to the work of the gospel. It says that giving to the work of the gospel is partnership in the gospel. It is as if you were preaching when you give contributions to missions and to the local church. And of course, prayer. Yes, we're told to pray, but what I'm saying is that the New Testament insists that prayer is a way of promoting the gospel. That when you are praying for your neighbor, it is as if you were knocking on their door, asking if you could share Christ with them. And it is crucial to think of this living, giving, and praying as genuine, full-orbed promotions of the glorious gospel. I think that's what I said last week. Anyone want to dispute that that's what I said last week? <laughs> This week, I want to pivot to the ways the New Testament says the gospel will advance through our lips, through stuff we say. So obviously, all of those are quiet. Deeds, finances, prayer, or living, giving, praying. Uh, these don't require speaking to others. These don't require going out on a limb and saying, I'm, I'm with Jesus, and having people shout you down in public cafes and the like. But I want to talk about the speaking aspect, which of course makes us all a little bit nervous. Exactly how and when does the Lord want me to speak up to those who don't believe? And it seems to me the New Testament has another three dimensions of speaking about the Lord. And I want to unpack all three of them. The first is perhaps most obvious and perhaps least relevant to the majority here, and it is simply that some are to be evangelists. The New Testament says that some are to be evangelists. This word evangelist is euangelistes in Greek, which you, don't, you can forget as soon as you hear, but it is basically the word gospel, euangel, with a different ending, istes, which means er, right? That's it, gospel er. It's someone given to the church for the particular task of proclaiming the gospel. Now, we instantly think of the great Billy Grahams and the Ravi Zacharias and the sort of traveling evangelist, but one of the interesting things to emerge from a close study of the gospel-ers in the New Testament is that many of them are either local church gospel-ers or they're committed to uh, two or three churches in a geographical area. Not explicitly this traveling 
evangelist model that we've developed in, in modern evangelicalism. Many of the gospel preaching functionaries served specific towns or districts. There is, if you just want the evidence, un, the unnamed brother praised by the Macedonian churches for gospel work in 2 Corinthians. Euodia and Syntyche, who are said to be uh, contenders for the gospel in Philippi. Epaphras, who is evangelizing the Lycus River Valley. That's just three churches in a 30-kilometer uh, region, uh, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Philip is named an evangelist, not while he's zipping around the countryside back in chapter 8. He's named the evangelist while he's stationed at Caesarea. Uh, Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist while stationed in Ephesus. This isn't telling him to go off on journeys. It's saying you, you are to, one of the things you are to do is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, one of the uh, things that uh, often goes missed in contemporary Christian talk about uh, evangelists is that some people say, all are evangelists. I mean, it used to be common, at least where I come from, to, uh, for, for preachers to get up and say, you're all evangelists. Every single one of you, you're an evangelist. And you can get the sense of what they're trying to evoke, that we all have a role in promoting the gospel. But what can happen if you keep on saying to every Christian, you're an evangelist, is you, you, you begin to carry a burden the New Testament actually doesn't lay on you. It doesn't actually say that you are a gospel -er. We all promote the gospel, yes, but we are not all gospel speakers, gospel preachers. And Ephesians 4.11 makes this perfectly clear. It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So some are evangelists. And then I have heard some people exegete this to say, ah, well, the role of the evangelist in preparing God's people for works of service is to train them all to be evangelists. Except if you start running that logic with all the other functionaries, is the role of the apostle to make us all apostles? Is the role of the prophet to make us all prophets? I don't think so. The evangelist's role, whether in one congregation or a couple of congregations, uh, is to build up the church, of course, by preaching the gospel to those who don't know the gospel. And we see many come to know the Lord. It is something to think about for you as a church. I haven't run this by Jeff, so. Uh, are there people in St. Philip's or in this shared uh, town of Charleston who are regarded as evangelists and um, given opportunities to evangelize because that is one of the New Testament ways the gospel goes forward. For some, for some. But let me pivot to the second dimension of speaking the gospel because this one involves all of us every week. We might not all be evangelists, but we all declare his praises in public worship. It is one of the uh, best kept secrets of mission, of evangelism, that the New Testament explicitly says public worship, what we just did at 8 o'clock and we'll do again, that public worship is a form of gospel proclamation for those in our midst who simply overhear. Psalm 96. 
Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. But here's the thing, this is addressed to Israel gathered either in the temple or in the early synagogues to declare his glory among the nations. That's interesting. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. The word elim means nothingness, actually. That's what the word idols means. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now, look at this sentence. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Who is suddenly being addressed by God's people in a psalm of praise? Families of nations is the Hebrew way of saying pagans. Right? Uh, the, the, the people who aren't the nation. That's the nations is the Gentiles. But, but this is now addressed to them. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now the Gentiles are being invited in an Old Testament psalm to come and join us. Will you come and join us? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This is not a lone psalm. We could find the same idea that public worship is actually partly designed for outsiders to hear the truth of God in praise and come and come. So Psalm 57, Psalm 105, Psalm 117, and there are many more other than that. And we shouldn't be surprised that you find the same theme in the New Testament. You often get that, right? Things in the Old Testament pop up in the New. Yeah? It's a thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> Peter, of course, Peter, the apostle, was raised in the Jewish praise, either of the synagogue or the Jerusalem temple, which he would have visited many times a year. And when he speaks to his Gentile converts in Bithynia and Pontus, and Cappadocia and Galatia, what we call Turkey, in his letter 1 Peter, he tells these Gentiles to do what Israel has always done, and that is declare the praises of God. He says to these Gentiles, you are a chosen people. That's the language of Israel. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, most commentators on 1 Peter detect a missionary theme in the words declare the praises because 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 is filled with mission vocabulary and mission teaching so it makes sense that Peter is saying that you Gentile congregations are meant to declare the praises of the one who called you out of darkness with a missionary sense now the, the interesting thing is what kind of speech is being referred to? I used to look at this passage. I used to teach that this passage refers to being on a bus one day and raising a conversation and asking people, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know if you'd go to heaven? And that's my declaring praises. I used to think it was like personal evangelism or knocking on the door or walking up to someone in the supermarket or whatever. Um, I no longer think that's what Peter is referring to because having looked at the words he uses, aratas exangelete, these are words straight out of liturgy. These are the Greek words used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed in Peter's day, used throughout the Psalms for declaring the praises of God as God's gathered people. This is not the normal telling the gospel in 
conversation. It's not even the work of the evangelist, the euangelistes. It is the work of God's people. When they gather, they are declaring his praises and others overhear, just like Psalm 96 said. One of my uh, favorite uh, preachers in the U.S. is Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. He's the, uh, has he preached here? Is he known to the congregation? Yeah. Um, he's, he's fantastic. Uh, he's a, a Presbyterian, so near enough to Anglican to be pretty good. Um, oops. Um, let me just read the quote. He says, uh, this is in a book uh, called uh, Worship by the Book, a wonderful book edited by D.A. Carson about sort of a New Testament theology of worship. But uh, Keller gets the chapter on evangelism through public worship. Listen to what he says. Israel was called to make known to unbelieving nations by singing his praises. The temple was to be the center of world-winning worship. The people of God not only worship before the Lord, but also before the nations. God is to be praised above all nations. And as he is praised by his people, the nations are summoned and called to join in song. That's that Psalm 96 stuff. This pattern, he says, does not essentially change in the New Testament, where Peter tells a Gentile church to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. The term cannot merely refer to preaching. I don't think it does at all refer to preaching, but must also refer to to gathered worship. I could introduce you to many people who have just joined in gathered worship, having been invited to uh, a normal church service by friends, and through what they've heard, what they have overheard, have come to know Christ. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, says this ought to be a kind of normal thing. You know that interesting passage about tongues and prophecy, okay? Uh, just that, you know, completely uncontroversial passage. But there's this um, really interesting thing he says in his argument favoring prophesying, which is sort of clear speech, over tongues, which is obscure speech. One of his arguments is, how will unbelievers in your midst hear it and get converted? He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, that's clear speech, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. He will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening or the building of the church. Paul expects visitors. It's a New Testament thing to expect visitors. And, and the thing that has always struck me about this is in Paul's day, churches were not open buildings. Were they? Where did they meet for church? Homes. You could not walk into someone's home uninvited in the ancient world. Anyone can walk in off the street and come into St. Philip's, and that's fantastic. But in this day, the only way unbelievers are present is because members of the congregation have invited them. And Paul fully expects that to happen. He fully expects things in church to be clear and for unbelievers to hear and turn. I could introduce you to so many people 
who have come to know the Lord simply through public praises. And one of them is Henry and Sandra, uh, dear friends of Buff and mine. They came to our little uh, Anglican church in the suburbs, uh, but how they got there was really interesting. Their daughter came home from the local school asking questions about God. And Sandra's response was, we don't really do God here. Um, and that's what that's, they do that at church. This family didn't go to church at all. And the daughter said, well, can we go there? Sandra thought, oh, well, I guess there's one just up the road there. All right, we'll go there. Her daughter bugged her. So on Sunday, they ended up at our church. They had a blast. Now, the interesting thing is, it was a normal, dare I say, boring Anglican church service. You know, with prayers and confession and creed and all that. Announcements. I think I, I think I better leave Charleston soon because I'm getting a little too cheeky. I get a little too comfortable here. But they came and Sandra loved it. She didn't know why. She asked Henry to come the next week. Henry didn't want to come. Henry was one of those people who came to church like this. Nice to see hardly anyone here today like that. Oh, one, one person. <laughs> Didn't want to be there, but actually by the end of the service, we were chatting to them, they were actually pretty touched. Couldn't put their finger on why. Asked if they could come back next week. <laughs> we were like, yes. Yeah, yeah. They came. And I remember Henry in those early weeks saying to me once, you know what, in my busy life, he's in a sort of corporate situation, this is like a one hour of, of solace and thoughtfulness in my whole week. I love it. Now, he wasn't talking about the preaching, which wasn't too bad, right? <laughs> he was talking about the church service and its, and its impact. And to cut a long story short, this whole uh, family came to know the Lord. Henry and Sandra are on uh, rosters, they're in Bible studies, and they love the Lord. It's through public praise. You are all evangelizing every week when you lift your voice in prayer and psalms and creeds and so on. You know, in fact, Rodney Stark, who's um, a famous sociologist of religion, not a Christian, uh, he's at Baylor University, in an interview with Christianity Today, he said, why do evangelical churches grow? Because they invite their neighbors to church. It really does come down to that. His analysis, he's been studying conversion for 40 years. His analysis is, the edge evangelical churches have, is that people just invite their neighbors to come one day. And people come and go, oh, this isn't quite what I imagined. The people are normal. The, the songs make sense. The prayers are for the same world I inhabit. And yet, I'm somehow lifted above myself public praise. You are proclaiming the gospel to the world. Thirdly, and again, I've forgotten how much time. Where, where am I meant to finish, Jeff? Um, that's okay. Just, just 
Because church starts at? <laughs> and he's getting stricter with me as the, as the <laughs> week goes on. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a wonderful symbiotic relationship. <laughs> the third dimension of speaking the gospel, not just evangelists, not just all of us every week in church, but also each to give an answer for the faith in regular conversation. The New Testament doesn't ask us all to be gospel preachers. It really doesn't. But it does urge us all to be always ready to give an answer to anyone who raises the topic. So we find Peter says this, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Clearly, it's a reference to answering non-believers, people who don't understand the reason for the hope that you have, and they ask you about it. And notice, Paul says the same thing. It's almost like the two apostles got together and said, let's not ask our people all to be evangelists, but let's at least ask them all to give an answer. Because look what Paul says in Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Isn't that interesting? Answer everyone seems to be what the apostles expect of us. Sure, you're not a preacher. But you are to be prepared, ready and willing, to give an answer for the faith. I can't remember if I've told you how my faith started. I mean, I know I've told you about Glenda, my teacher at school, who fed me hamburgers and the gospel. But actually, it really began by my asking her a question in the hallway at school one day. Um, I, I was interested in the God that she mentioned. And I went up to her once, making sure none of my friends could see me talking to the religious lady. And I said, Mrs. Weldon, if God's true, and I'm not saying he is, but if he is, what does he think of me? Interesting question, really. She was beautiful. I will never forget her simple answer. She said, John, God sees everything you've done, said, and thought. And she left an awkward pause just like that. And I remember thinking, that's not God. <laughs> God sees everything I've done, said, and thought. But then she said, but he loves you even still. Hmm. I thanked her for the comment. I shot off into the playground. But those words went round around my head. I can remember them like they were yesterday. God sees everything you've done, said, and thought, John. But he loves you even still. I mean, in, in that twofold statement that took about 20 seconds, she's kind of prepared me for the gospel, hasn't she? 
And I reckon it was those words going round and round in my head that put me in a place where when she eventually invited the class to her home on Friday afternoons after school for hamburgers, milkshakes, scones, and Bible study, I was prepared to do it. My, my point is, you never know when the simplest thing you say, 30 seconds you say to a neighbor or a critic of the faith, where you reply with gentleness and respect and grace, you just don't know what an amazing impact it will have. I love the balance in Peter's words especially uh, because there's confidence and humility. Do you, do you see it there in Peter's words? There's confidence. Don't fear them. Revere Christ. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Right? Confidence. But do this how? With gentleness and respect. I love this New Testament balance and, it, and it's so important especially as things are hotting up in secularizing America. We must not make the mistake of withdrawing in fear, as some churches advocate. Let's become more like monasteries. Keep to ourselves, and if people knock on the door, you know, yes, we'll let them in. Or the opposite is to become arrogant and, you know, demand our rights and sound like the arrogant critics of the church. We're just arrogant defenders of the church. They're both mistakes. We neither withdraw nor attack, but we hold confidence in balance with gentleness. As I said in the sermon last week, Christianity is solid and soft. It's solid because you can come to it with skeptical muscles fully flexed, take any hit at it, and it's still standing there smiling sweetly back at you. But it's soft in the sense that it's not a hard truth. It's a, it's a gentle truth. It's the truth of God's self-giving for us. A good friend of mine and colleague, Simon Smart, who's a theologian in, uh, in Sydney, likes to describe Christianity as a high-jump mat. You know those high-jump mats in the Olympics? where they're giant. I mean, they're, they're like you know, this high. And they're probably as big as this sta thing, stage thing, right? And, the, and the, the high jumper comes up, jumps up, and lands in it, right? And, and Simon says, that's what Christianity should be like. When you bump into it, it's soft. It catches you. You feel safe in it. But if you try and move this thing, it is so heavy. It is immovable. And Christianity is simultaneously immovable and gentle. Revere Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, but with gentleness and respect. Or in Paul's words, uh, always full of grace. I need to remember this. I really do, because I'm one of those people who kind of likes an argument. Sure, there are some of us in that category. And, and I can sometimes get into a conversation or a public setting where I forget that I'm really trying to win human beings to Christ and just think I'm trying to win an argument. And, it, and it's terrible. I've done it too many times. I can't remember if I've told you about 
this man I met in a pub who was a friend of a friend. And he was a self-made, multi-millionaire, complete atheist, and he asked me what I did for a living. Which is, which is always the death of a conversation or, or it lights it up beautifully. And, and I told him what I did. You know, I basically spend my time trying to outline the logic and beauty of the Christian faith to people who don't think there's much to it. And he scoffed. He told me all the reasons why, you know, you should be an atheist. He, he said that um, science has disproved the Bible, apparently. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I'd read enough and done this enough to sort of offer gentle, respectful replies. Yeah. Then he said, uh, Christians are all hypocrites. They're one thing on Sunday, another thing on Monday. And, you know, I responded, you know, partly saying, yes, you know, um, we, we say that about ourselves every Sunday morning uh, in confession. Um, but, you know, but there's another part of the story. I, I was gentle and respectful, fine. But then he said, and we all know that Christianity only spread throughout the world because of Christian armies. It was the sword in the hand that led to the conversion of Europe. I was like, really? Have you got your religions right there, mate? He said, oh, yeah. Scholars have proven that Christianity only spread through warfare. Hmm. So here's the thing. My PhD in ancient history is in how Christianity spread in the first three centuries. <laughs> so, a little switch went off in my head. And having been beautifully gentle and respectful for the first ten minutes, I suddenly raised my voice, I quoted scholars he'd never heard of in multiple languages, I started to take his arguments one by one. And you know, as I was talking, I saw a look on his face that basically said, you jerk. And then I could hear Peter in my ear with gentleness and respect. Or Paul, always with grace. The conversation ended. Obviously, I won the technical argument. But friends, my point is, I lost that guy. I felt terrible. I, really, I was apologizing to the Lord. Never seen him again. But in his great sample of one, Christians are not gentle or respectful or gracious. And my point is this, how on earth can we expect to convey to people God's own self-giving in Christ if we sound arrogant? I just can't understand how it would be possible to convey grace without grace. So yes, friends, let's not lose confidence. Let's revere Christ and fear no one. But go into this world, some of us evangelists, all of us praising God, but giving an answer with gentleness and respect. Confidence, humility. Confidence, humility. 
So Lord, will you please take these words, your words, and apply them to our hearts and give us a sense of what we individually need to hear from all of this. And help us as a church, as St. Philip's, as Charlestonians, help us, Lord, please, to shine the light of the gospel in this place. This place that has known such amazing gospel work where your people have led the community in good works and kindness and yet now, Lord, in a community that in some ways is turning its back against you. Where education seems to exclude you, you who are the font of all knowledge and wisdom. Oh, Lord, help us respond, not with anger. Help us respond, Lord, not with fear, but confidence and humility to bring Charleston, indeed America, back to you, the living God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. Amen.